Welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. In this week's episode, we welcome Michel Sapin and Valentina Lana. Michel served as a Minister of Finance in France and now works as a Senior Advisor for Franklin Lawyers with a specialization on anti-corruption laws. Valentina is a lecturer at the Sciences Po Law School in Paris. Matthew Stevenson interviews the two about the French anti-corruption approach and the law known as La Loi Sapin II. For all of you who are interested in reading more about it, check out our show notes where we link to a blog post that our two guests wrote about it. Without further ado, we hope you enjoy the episode. Greetings and welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. This is Matthew Stevenson, And I'm thrilled to, that today on uh, our podcast episode, we have two very special guests. Uh, joining me on the podcast today are Michel Sapin, who is a very distinguished uh, French politician who served in multiple senior positions in the French government. Uh, he served, uh, among other things, as the Minister of Finance from 2014 to 2017, uh, also serving as the Minister of Economy uh, during the 2016-2017 period, and who was uh, the principal uh, author, I believe, of the French anti-corruption law known as the Loi Sapin II, uh, which, as many of our listeners will be aware, was a major and important reform to France's anti-corruption legal infrastructure. Uh, also joining me today on today on the podcast is Valentina Lana, who is a French lawyer and lecturer at Sciences Po, uh, also an expert in corruption and anti-bribery. And uh, the two of them are here uh, with me today on the podcast to talk in particular about France's approach to anti-corruption, anti-bribery, and uh, reforms to uh, the French system and the way forward in addressing this problem. So, so uh, Mr. Sapin, uh, Valentina, both of you, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure to be talking with you today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, perhaps we can begin uh, with me asking each of you to say a little bit about uh, your own background with respect to the topic of corruption, anti-corruption. And, and I realize that this could potentially fill up our entire uh, podcast because there's a lot to say. Uh, so you don't need to, to say everything, but I'd really be interested in hearing from both of you about um, how the topic of anti-corruption, anti-bribery came to feature so prominently in your professional lives, of course, uh, differently uh, for uh, Mr. Sapin uh, in your role as a government minister, and of course, uh, uh, Valentina in your role as a, as a lawyer. But uh, I think it's useful for our listeners to get a sense of what your background is and how this topic became um, an important one for each of you. So may I ask you to just say a few words about your own uh, background with respect to this topic? Yes, with pleasure. Um, as you said, I am a lawyer by training. Uh, I always say that no one is perfect. I am also trained in international affairs, um, and I work for years in law firms in very international settings. And I am now with a uh, consulting firm, and I have the great privilege of working and living in very um, international, diverse, and multicultural environments. I am myself the product of several cultures. Uh, what I do now with the consulting firm I am with is that I help my clients 
build the strong and robust compliance programs, in particular anti-corruption programs. But most of all, I try to help my clients, large multinational corporations, build a strong culture uh, of anti-corruption as well as a compliance uh, culture. I would say that my clients are mostly in the financial and in the tax sector. And I also lead in my company an international anti-corruption working group. Starting in January of 2022, and this is what I have in, in, in common with uh, Monsieur Satin, we became lecturer at the Sciences Po Law School. The title of our class is The Fight Against Corruption in Business in Europe and in the World. And our, we had a lot of fun, I have to say, and we learned a lot from our students. And our class we also, will also be uh, offered as part of the um, executive education programs by Sciences School starting the next academic year, so in the fall of 2022. So, and for me, uh, as you say, uh, I was uh, a minister twice, uh, minister of finance uh, uh, in the uh, 1992-93 and uh, uh, in 2014-2017 and in this uh, occasion I was very uh, uh, interesting, more interesting by fighting uh, corruption. Corruption in France, it was the first law who spelled uh, Sapin, uh, because in France we was uh, were were very very big problems of corruption in, in the politic class in companies just in France. But after uh, when I arrived uh, in uh, 2014, uh, the situation of France uh, uh, between uh, corruption, uh, international corruption. Uh, was very, very bad. And uh, I think it was uh, very bad for the, the image of uh, France uh, and very bad for com French companies. And as you know, uh, if I, I, I can speak about a, uh, a joke, um, I, I went in, in, uh, uh, in uh, Washington to see the DOG. And uh, when I was minister, and I say, why are you so uh, terrible with uh, French companies um, about uh, uh, corruption? Uh, and he said, no, no. And at the end of uh, the, the conversation, he said, yes, okay, you don't do the job, so I do it. And it's terrible when you are minister and uh, the DOG say, you don't do the job. So I, I do it. It's, it's, a, it's a very big problem for us and for the French companies. So we decided to do something and to do something who was uh, were uh, uh, in line with uh, the convention convention of uh, OECD, uh, and it's the second Sapin law. You say it's been low too uh, in, in France. Uh, and now, uh, when I uh, discuss with uh, the OG representatives, uh, they say, so now, Michel, you do the job. So <laughs> we we are now with a very 
practical law and the ECUD uh, say uh, in the next uh, control, in the next report, uh, uh, the French situation is now very at the very big level and you are in, on the high uh, level uh, to, to, to your efficacy uh, between the about uh, fighting corruption. That's very important for me because I, I think in the political uh, engagement it's for, for 35 uh, years of my uh, uh, engagement, uh, uh, it's, it's very important uh, this, this uh, ethics, you say ethics, but ethics uh, uh, position. It's for very important ethics, it's very important uh, for uh, the, the French uh, image, and it's very important for French companies. So now I think we have something uh, who is uh, very effective, and uh, I, it's the end of this part of my intervention, and now I am a lawyer, a lawyer in the French cabinet, uh, and the head of compliance uh, so I, I am on the other side of the table uh, and I can see how this new legislation uh, work and how the companies can do for respect this legislation and be active to uh, uh, fighting corruption in international, uh, uh, at the international level. So I'm glad you brought up the, the um the changes in France, and I definitely want to talk in just a moment about the specific uh, features of French law that, that the Loi Sapin de uh, affected and how those may have had an impact. But, but something about the story you just told provoked another question that I wanted to ask, which is um, how the politics of this issue changed in France that, that created the possibility to do this major legal reform. Because you, when you first served as Minister of Finance back in the early 1990s, this was before there was an OECD anti-bribery convention. Um, the United States had a law in the books, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, but it wasn't enforced very aggressively. Um, starting around the late 1990s and early 2000s, the United States started enforcing its law more aggressively. Um, but when I began studying corruption in a serious way uh, close to 10 years ago, France's reputation in the international anti-bribery community was not great, as you say. And um, one would often hear from France a lot of complaints about the United States being overreaching and overly aggressive, and also a lot of defenses of traditional features of the French legal system that many outside critics thought were a big problem. So uh, the lack of any kind of settlement mechanism, uh, the, the um, very uh, onerous forms of criminal procedure and so forth. Uh, there was this real perception that um, the French political and legal elites were not terribly interested in reforming the system and rather they tended to criticize their critics. But then, ex ex while you were serving in government, as exactly as described, it seems like things changed. And France's approach really shifted towards, as you say, adopting these quite significant reforms that I want to talk about more in a moment. And I guess what I would like to ask 
you to to talk about is is why what was the what was the change in the political circumstances in France that made it possible to have such a significant reform to France's anti-corruption system? Yes, well, that's a very good uh, question. But so I think uh, first uh, the French companies say me when I was minister, it's not possible to continue like this. For French companies, it's uh, it was a uh, an a difficulty, an obstacle to have some uh, contract, international contract. The, uh, the World Bank or other uh, international uh, institution uh, say it's not possible to, to, to contract with French companies because the French system is not at a good level. So the company, French companies say me, Please do something. Uh, perhaps it, it will be a little bit uh, uh, difficult for us. It would be a little bit uh, some uh, administration uh, rule or some bureaucratic rule. But do something. We want it. It's very, it was very different uh, uh, between the first French law. For the first French law. Uh, uh, the political uh, system say it's we want to do it and we imposed uh, the companies French companies in this uh, situation this, the next uh, situation uh, it was the companies who say it's not possible and the second case uh, where it's, it's I think my desire to accept the, the French it's not was the, the, the legal system uh, the we, we say the code penal who uh, uh, distinguish the different uh, the, the different offensive and the different uh, say uh, we yes an offense uh, who is exactly uh, like OECD say uh, like in uh, America or like in uh, United Kingdom, but the system, French system is inefficient, was inefficient. So we do two big uh, reform. First, we say it's an obligation for companies to put uh, in, uh, in in place uh, um, an anti-corruption program and we created an agency who uh, control if the big companies uh, put this program in place and if they don't put it in place we will be fine it and the second uh, very big reform for French system it's uh, something like the American system so the transaction uh, with company for because it's very difficult to uh, prove the uh, corruption with, with a normal system very difficult but it's a problem for companies if you uh, talk about him and about corruption uh, one years two years five years ten years it's very bad for uh, image and for reputation so we put it 
in place a system we call CGIP. Uh, it's like the FCPA. Uh, it's uh, like the Deferred Prosecution Agreement. It's the okay. French version of the Deferred Prosecution Agreement. And, and as, as you know, when for a very big uh, case of corruption uh, with Airbus, uh, we works with the, the French institution works together with American institution and the French institution was the leader and Americans say, okay, you, you do the job. So I am here. We have some uh, information about uh, the problem. We decide together uh, what can we do with the situation? What's the good uh, uh, solutions? And we decide together in the same time uh, in America, in France, and in England, what's the decision and what's happened for uh, Airbus. And so it's a production of uh, this new efficacy of legal French system. It's very important for us. And if I can say that, uh, before CPT2 law, uh, a big number of French company was prosecuted in, in America. And after, no French company for international corruption. So now the, the cooperation with America and with British is very good. And it's uh, a guarantee of efficacy and it's a guarantee for companies where when will uh, the solution will be uh, very uh, uh, fear yes and uh, it's a very definitely solution with no problem if another authority after we will uh, persecute after so now it's very very different excuse me for my, my bad English. No, not at all. And that was extremely helpful. Um, and you actually already started answering the next question I was going to ask. So I, I started out by asking what was the what were the changes in political circumstances that made it possible to adopt this reform? And, and then I was going to ask you about some of the specifics of the reform. And and you already, I think, shared what I understand. And, and please correct me if I'm incorrect, if I'm wrong about this, the most important features of the the legal reforms from from 2016. I know the law. There are a lot of changes, but at first there was the creation creation of this new agency, a French anti-corruption agency with various responsibilities, partly supporting the efforts of companies and others to comply with the law. Um, then there was this uh, requirement that companies over a particular size have to have uh, an appropriate compliance system. And then, as you say, there was a, a reform that created not exactly the same thing as the United States deferred prosecution or non-prosecution agreements, but but a, a French mechanism that performs a, a somewhat similar function in that it allows the resolution of uh, bribery cases against uh, corporations uh, to be resolved through negotiations and, and settlement. Um, rather than necessarily requiring uh, a, a, a full criminal prosecution and a, and a guilty verdict. So uh, please, Valentin, do you want to add something to that? What is interesting about what we call the French version of the uh, deferred prosecution agreement is the way it is called, the CJIP, CJIP, Convention Judiciaire d'Intérêt Public, which I could loosely translate 
as judicial settlement in the public interest. And the interest this part is in the public interest. When uh, a company enters into this kind of settlement with the, um, with the prosecutor, it will have to bear three types of legal consequences. Number one, a fine equal to 30% uh, of the average uh, revenue in the three preceding years. The second one is the payment of some kind of compensation to the victims. And the third one is the implementation of a, a compliance program under the supervision of the French anti-corruption agency for three years. When we say public interest, it covers multiple aspects, but the most important one is that when you enter into this kind of settlement, the consequences for the company in terms of reputation will be somehow limited. And most of all, the company will continue its activity. So employees of the company having nothing to do with the corruption perpetrated by other people in the company, in some cases at a very high level of the high levels of the company, will continue their work and the company will still be a, a corporate citizen producing in the French system or someone else, because the, as you know, as we know, the, the, the law is extraterritorial. So that this is the public interest. It is absolutely essential if we want really to understand the, the philosophy and all the rationale behind the French law. So it is absolutely in the public interest. Terrific. So, so one thing I, I'd be really interested to hear from both of you, actually, um, is your sense of, of how it's working. So I've heard from both of you already, I've, I've gotten a very positive uh, general assessment, which is great. Um, but I want to maybe ask a little bit more specifically, because the law has been in place now for over five years. And that's not a very long time, but it's long enough to start to get a sense of how the provisions are working. So I, I understand that the general sense from both of you is that it's been, been quite a success. Uh, but I was wondering again, if you could maybe say a little bit more. So I'm curious, if there are particular things that you would point to as especially effective um, aspects of the new law, things that you've noticed already, maybe with the clients that you're working with or just your, your observations of the world seem to be really having a very positive impact. Are there any surprises? Are there any things, about, and maybe any parts of the law that are having a bigger effect than you thought, or maybe parts of the law that you anticipated would have a very big effect, but in practice don't seem to be as important? And also, um, even though the overall story in both of your views is one of success, are there any disappointments or frustrations uh, now that you've had five plus years of experience with the law in place where you think there are really some issues that, that still need to be addressed or some problems that need to be fixed? So, so surprises, good or bad, uh, difficulties or challenges, or the things that you would point to as the most, in, in hindsight with five years, the most important aspects of the law as it's been uh, put into effect thus far? It's very difficult to single out one aspect of the law. Many provisions, of course, uh, go and work hand in hand. But I would say that the, uh, the, the most important, the, the really life-changing uh, provision of the law is uh, in Article 17, the creation of a direct obligation for entities, in particular companies of a certain size. It's 500 employees um, plus uh, 100 million uh, revenues, uh, annual revenue, and the two criteria are cumulative. So these large entities 
have the obligation, and I will tell you later why I call it direct obligation, to create a compliance program. And the compliance program has to meet the criteria set in Article 17. It's like a, a recipe. Uh, these companies have to create an, um, a code of ethics. Uh, they have to have um, whistleblowing channels. Then they need to map the risk of corruption and the mapping of corruption risk is really a, like a picture, a photograph of your risk landscape, which will uh, determine the quantity and the quality of all the other ingredients. It will tell you uh, how, what kind of code of conduct you need to, uh, you need to draft, how you need to define your uh, whistleblowing channels, etc. Then you need to uh, conduct due diligence on third parties. Uh, of course, you need to pay attention to the uh, um, all the accounting system, uh, a training uh, system. Of course, all the employees need to be aware of what corruption is and how to effectively fight against corruption. Uh, measure number uh, seven out of the eight ingredients of Article 17 is the um, creation of a disciplinary system. And number eight, the last obligation is the uh, overall monitoring, uh, control, and review of the system. So this is the direct obligation I referred to before. And it's different from the US system and the British system. In the British system, uh, uh, Section 7 of the Ukraine Barbarian created the offense of failure to prevent. And so if you don't want to find yourself in a situation of failure to prevent, you will have to create an anti-corruption program according to the principle uh, set in the guidance of the OKBA. In the States, it's different again. The obligation is indirect. Prosecutors will, will see if there was an anti-corruption system, but only if there is an investigation, a prosecution, or even a conviction for corruption in France. And I will quote uh, Professor Andy Spalding, who said that in France, even a company of angels must put in place an anti-corruption program, even if we are sure 100% that no corruption will be perpetrated, still, we will have to put in place the anti-corruption program. So companies, regardless of their level of uh, ethics and commitment to ethical causes, they have to start thinking about corruption. What does corruption mean to me? How do I need imposed? How do I put in place an anti-corruption program that reflects my DNA as a company, my sector, the way I do business? It was like, sorry for the metaphor, but it was like going to a, a therapist. You start thinking about yourself, and the, the kind of third parties you do business with, the sector you operate in. And so they have companies, French companies, French public and, and private entities have to ask themselves questions about corruption. And this is the revolution, I have to say, that happened in the French system. And this is what triggered the um, the French progress in the fight against corruption, the fact that there is a direct obligation to put in place an anti-corruption program. This is what was somehow revolutionary that changed the mindset. And, and my surprise, my big surprise, is the rapidity and the quality of uh, the decision of uh, companies. You know, uh, in one year, so one year and a half, uh, uh, the agency, uh, the beginning of the, the, the control, and the French agency, of course, 
say something is wrong or something uh, will be better. But in general, the agencies say, oh, it's uh, a congratulations, you, 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 do, you do your best. And it's a, like, like say Valentin, it's a real revolution for French company, this uh, uh, obligation uh, of plan, uh, uh, to, to, to put it with this plan, uh, fighting corruption. And they do it rapidly, rapidly, uh, very rapidly. Uh, of course, uh, something uh, will be, uh, some amelioration are, are, are necessary, but uh, it's, it's very rapidly. And, uh, uh, and on the other side, the insti French institution uh, take the new power and the new uh, um, procedure, uh, the CEGIP, uh, and you have many CEGIP in France. Uh, in in uh, in two or three years, many CEGIP uh, was decided and was signed um, between uh, uh, French institution and uh, uh, companies. And it's not uh, so. Uh, it was not so sure because it's not a French uh, uh, disposition. Uh, this transaction in French, you know, you have you have a, a, a judge and you have a court and and uh, lawyers like to 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 do something uh, in public. And here it's different. So you 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 talk not in public. Uh, of course, the decision is public, but. It's another way. It's another uh, work. It's a new work, and uh, uh, it, it was very rapidly in the culture. It's entered in the culture, French culture, very rapidly. I think it's a it's a very good thing. And the eyes of other countries, I think so. I think it's reality for American institution, UG and other, uh, and the eyes of the the the, the, the world. Change uh, between the situation of uh, of France and also uh, the next uh, rapport of uh, EOCD, the inverse of French OCD. Right. <laughs> and the rapport was was very 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 uh, uh, positive. And they say the French system with agency, uh, perhaps it's a good one, and perhaps. Uh, uh, other country uh, will uh, should should uh, should put this system in place. So that, that's so interesting because again, when I started paying attention to these issues nearly a decade ago, um, when I encountered French authors, you know, judges, law professors, and others writing on this topic, there was a lot of criticism of the idea that France could adopt a settlement mechanism, anything like the the deferred prosecution agreements or even just plea bargains that are common in the united states and a lot of again french jurists and french professors would say you know you americans just don't understand our culture is totally different our legal system is totally different this just is even if we tried this just isn't something we could do and it, it sounds like that was incorrect from what you just said this mechanism that was created by the la saint-pendeau has actually in a very short time uh become a widely used uh, mechanism that has really been absorbed by the French legal culture in a distinctive way. It's not the same as the American system. It's not the same as the UK system, but it 
within the French context, it performs a very similar function. I also want to come back, Valentina, do you, you're, you discussed this other important piece of the law, the direct obligation to adopt an anti-corruption compliance system overseen by this new agency. So I'm I'm delighted to hear that this has had such a positive effect. And, and exactly as Mr. Sapin was just saying, other countries are most likely watching this part of France's experiment as well and seeing if there's something that can be learned from it, especially since, as you said, this is quite different from the way this is done in the US. So in the US, prosecutors will take into account the quality of your compliance system when deciding whether to prosecute you um, and what kinds of sanctions to seek or what kind of settlement will be acceptable. But there's although there's some very general high level guidelines in the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act resources guide that the Department of Justice and the Securities and Exchange Commission publish, again, it's very general and it's not part of the law. I think that I once heard a very senior US DOJ attorney say something like in response to, to the idea that the DOJ should provide more specific guidance on what a compliance system should look like. We don't tell bank robbers how not to rob banks, right? The implication, we, we just expect them to comply and they will come up with whatever compliance system works best for them. But France has taken a different approach. France not only is providing guidance, France is providing a mandate that large companies have a, a compliance system. So again, this is not something I'm familiar with, right? As an American, my system is very different, but I wanna know more about both how this works and why this works. Because if you just described the system to me before it was adopted, I think I would be pretty skeptical about whether it would be effective. And, and here's why I would be skeptical. I would say first, well, this applies to what so like every country with more than company with more than 500 employees. I don't know how many companies that is in France, but it's got to be hundreds or thousands of companies. And companies are so different with respect to their lines of business and their level of risk and so forth. Um, it would be very difficult to have a kind of the American, the English expression would be one size fits all approach to anti-bribery compliance. So it's going to have to, you're going to have thousands of companies they're going to have different situations, needs, levels of risk. And there's always the worry with compliance systems about a, what we sometimes call a paper system or a check the box system, where you know the company has all the right stuff written down, but how do we know it's really working? How do we know it's a serious system? How do we know that the training sessions they run actually work? How, like all that stuff. And then, so who's, who's going to be in charge of figuring out if it's a real compliance system and if it really works? And if you tell me it's going to be this new government agency, I would say, how is a relatively small number of government bureaucrats going realistically to review hundreds or thousands of individual compliance programs and figure out whether they're real or whether they're you know just on paper? So I would have been one of the skeptics about, now I would have been totally in favor of tell companies they should adopt a compliance system, maybe make this something that's taken into account in prosecutions, but I would have been a skeptic that this would have actually had a really significant, meaningful, substantive impact. And it sounds like I would have been wrong. It sounds like you would say to me, no, you're, you, you're wrong because we did this and lo and behold, as you say, very rapidly, it's having a big impact on French companies. So I'm glad that I would have been wrong. But, but tell me why this works. It seems like this is not something 
that should work when you have a relatively small agency reviewing comp anti-bribery compliance programs for hundreds or thousands of companies in a real and meaningful way and making sure that they they work so so explain this to me how does this work and maybe explain to other reformers in other countries looking at the french experience and wanting to know how to make something like this work T tell me how, how this why was this so successful let me just say that I am so happy that we're talking today after the release of the OECD phase four report in December of 2021. So your level of skepticism is not as high as it would have been pre-2016, pre-adoption of the uh, SAPN2 Act. Um, so uh, first of all, um, there are two uh, sets of provisions. Um, binding provisions, the content of Article 17 of the law, the one I mentioned before when I listed the ingredients of a robust anti-corruption uh, program. And, and they're pretty general. They're pretty general. And they are, uh, as you said, one size fits all, but they're general enough um, to be, uh, to be um, interpreted, I would say, by different kinds of companies, companies operating in different uh, sectors, as well as doing business with different partners in different countries. So these are the binding rules in the law. And then you have recommendations. Recommendations are released by the French anti-corruption agency, the Agence Française Anticorruption. The last set of uh, recommendations dates back to the 12th of January of 2021. Anytime the French anti-corruption agency releases anything, recommendations, guides, reports, etc., uh, it asks any kind of actor uh, in France to submit recommendations, observations. So it is not something that comes from the anti-corruption agency without any consultation. So that goes more into the uh, tailor-made approach. And then the recommendations being all the recommendations are not legally binding. So the recommendations by the French anti-corruption agency are much more detailed than, of course, the provisions of Article 17, but they are not legally binding. There is a different legal mechanism. It is the uh, burden of proof. It means that if as a company, when I build my anti-corruption programs, I follow the recommendations of the French anti-corruption agency, it will be um, the duty of the anti-corruption agency to prove that my anti-corruption program is either inexistent or not sufficient, so that I am in a situation of non-compliance. If, on the other hand, I decide to still follow the provision of Article um, 17 to put in place an anti-corruption program with the eight ingredients, but I want to do it in a totally different way without following their recommendations, um, it will be uh, for me to prove that the way I, I created my anti-corruption program was effective. And in, in the end, that program reflecting the uh, aid obligations, but not respecting the recommendations, is a robust, strong program to uh, detect, uh, deter, and fight against corruption in my company. The second element I wanted to describe when you say that, you know, this is a one-size-fits-all, it's not a tailor-made uh, program for companies, 
is that when you look at the eight ingredients, you need to start from number three. It is counterintuitive, I agree with you, but you need to start from number three. Number three is the mapping of risks. When you do your mapping of risk, as I said before, and I'm going to use a culinary and the landscape, a photograph uh, uh, metaphor, you are taking a photograph of your risk landscape. When you know uh, what, where your risks are, what your risks are, and, and, and besides, when you assess the risk, you will be able to determine the quality and the quantity of all the other ingredients. You will uh, determine what kinds of due diligence on third parties you need to you need to conduct. You will have a better awareness of the third parties you you do business with. You will know that if a third party has not a good reputation, you're not prohibited from doing business with that third party. But you just need to take precautions to take measure to control that risk. And for example, the training uh, system. Of course, a company in one sector cannot give the same training on the fight against corruption that another company in a totally different sector will have to uh, will have to create. So when you map your risks of corruption based on where you are, the third parties you do business with, your sector, the kind of companies you want to merge with or you want to uh, acquire, that will also tell you what kind of training you need to give to your employees and in particular if you conduct very well your um, risk mapping exercise you will be able to determine who in the company is exposed to risk of corruption and to which risks of corruption and based on that you will target functions in the company not to say people in the company that will need that kind of training to decipher what corruption is and to determine how to respond uh, to cases of corruption, to uh, uh, authors of uh, corruption. So this is why, why you can put together a uh, one-size-fits-all, a general a list of provisions with a more uh, tailor-made approach, which comes both from the uh, French anti-corruption agency recommendations, but also from this absolutely pivotal um, obligation, which is to map your risks of corruption, which will turn all the ingredients, all the uh, provisions of Article 17 into a uh, um, response that is really adapted to your own situation as a company. So there's still, so one that's really helpful, there's still one thing I'm a little bit, maybe more than one thing, but one thing I want to ask about that I'm still a little bit confused on. So who determines whether a company's compliance system is adequate? So I understand. So if you have a company in good faith, maybe consulting with the two of you or people who do similar kind of work, it really wants to get this right. Um, the guidelines, the eight fundamental uh, requirements of the law are things they take seriously. They look at the recommendations and so forth. But, but what if you have a company that either you know, not super ethical or, you know, doesn't really care or wants to do the bare minimum, or maybe a company that, that in good faith thinks it can use a different approach, uh, but is wrong and, and has an approach that isn't terribly suitable for that company. I'm still a little bit, I'm a little bit unclear because I'm not an expert in how the law operates. Who evaluates whether a company's anti-corruption compliance system meets the requirements of the law is it the anti-corruption agency and if so how does it possibly handle the volume 
of uh, compliance programs it presumably has to review, uh, especially given that I would I would assume that their own expertise is somewhat limited. Uh, is it enforced through some other mechanism? Does it have an impact on the outcome of subsequent judicial proceedings? Like, explain to me how uh, if a company says, "Hey, we've we've complied with the law. We have a great system." How do we know that's true? Like, what's the mechanism for enforcement under French law? It is certainly not the honor system. It is the French anti-corruption agency, which will um, assess, first of all, the existence of an anti-corruption program, and then the, uh, the robustness of it, uh, and whether it corresponds or not to the obligations, as well as to the recommendations, it is true, and I know what you're thinking. The, the agency is, is not is not a big one. So how can they monitor the compliance level of every single company in France or every single company uh, that meets the the, the, um, the requirement of the of the French anti-corruption law? Uh, of course, they cannot. Uh, they don't uh, monitor thousands of companies every year. But I have to say, and this is really a cultural element, and we know that culture helps the legal system and the legal system helps cultures. It is in most cases a, vir a virtual circle. The creation of this direct obligation, which means also the fines associated with it, the role of the French anti-corruption agency were a big deterrent in the French system. And so now company fear somehow that the French anti-corruption agency might at some point start an audit, an investigation. So it is both the role of the French anti-corruption agency in, in actually controlling companies, but also the uh, deterrent that the obligation and the fines that go with it um, represented and represents the French company. Interesting. So, so it's a combination of cultural factors and then a random audit of some set, or maybe a non-random audit. But it's the possibility that the French anti-corruption agency might check your compliance program, and if they determine it's deficient, then I guess are you subject to sanctions of some kind, or do they just say fix it? Yes, of course. Of okay. Of course. Well, I, 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 there's so much more we could say specifically about this, but I'm mindful of your time, and I do want to come back to another aspect of the question that I asked earlier, which is that um, if we turn our gaze from, from a retrospective evaluation of, of the past uh, to a forward-looking evaluation of, of what still needs to be done, uh, what would you? What would each of you say on that front? So again, I, I asked before, where do you think the the Loi Sapendu has has been quite successful um, and has had a big positive impact? And 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 you both laid out some important information uh, pertaining to that question. But another aspect of my question is, where have there been um, either you know flaws with the law itself or, or deficiency with the law itself, or even if we put aside a criticism of the law, just things that the law has not yet addressed, challenges looking forward. So if you look if you look ahead for the next 5, 10, 15 years, um, I assume you don't believe that now everything's fixed and the French anti-corruption system is perfect uh, or as good as it can possibly be. So if you were giving advice to the next generation of people who, like Monsieur Sapin, will, will occupy these important positions in government or people in the French uh, legislature or, or, or the executive branch or other reformers, what, would, what advice would you give them about these are the, 
the high priority issues that France really needs to address through legal reform, uh, through statutory changes or legal changes or, or what have you, to continue to move this agenda forward. So what would be on your wish list, in your, your top maybe two, three, four most important items that you would say, these are the things we need to focus on to improve France's approach to anti-bribery? Uh, I think you want a, a SEPIN free uh, act. <laughs> no, I, I think very important now is to continue the effort. You know, in France, perhaps it's the same in other countries, we have a new law, the companies uh, are, are decide to, to, to put it uh, in fact, it's uh, for companies, it's her uh, interest, that's real. Uh, like uh, I say, uh, as I say, uh, uh, institutions take power, companies uh, uh, make an effort, but an effort now, one year, two years, three years, four years, it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. The effort will be continued years after years. And that's very important. It's very important uh, uh, to, to uh, say uh, governments or parliament put uh, the resource, human resource and financial resource to the French agency. Because not not one year, but <laughs> in, in uh, it, it will. It's very important to 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 have a continue effort, a continue effort. Because uh, as I say, I think the the guards of uh, our country change now. But <laughs> if something happened, it could, it, it, it could change again. It could uh, in person. So uh, it's very important to, 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 to conserve this uh, new regards, this new uh, modality of uh, uh, works with uh, American and British institutions. It's very important to, uh, uh, to be the leader in Europe. We want now in Europe, in, uh, 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 what we name, it, name with, the name is Directive, Directive, it's like a European law. We want a, a, a SAPI law on, on the European level because uh, it's very important for uh, European companies who work in all the uh, EU and, of course, uh, in the world to have the same obligation and the same desire to, 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 uh, to fighting uh, uh, corruption. Uh, because now you know the problem. It's not uh, what's happened in America, what's happened in, in, uh, in uh, France, or what happened in Europe. The problem is what's happened with other companies of other countries. Uh, you know, when the OCDE uh, <laughs> uh, Commission was signed, uh, I think it was uh, uh, 85 or 88% of international trade, uh, the, 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 the countries who was signed this convention represented uh, 48% of trade, international trade. Now, the same countries represented 16, 66, 
persons. So, of course, China, of course, India, of course, Arabia, of course, Turkey, uh, of course, other uh, countries uh, are very, very, very present in the trade, international trade, of course, in Africa or somewhere in, in Asia. So now the problem is not, it's, of course, you will continue, it's necessary to continue the effort in France, in Europe, but it's very important to do to uh, to do uh, something at the international level at the uh, we say the G G G twenty uh, at the G twenty level to, because if we do this effort and if the other big country doesn't do it, so what happened for companies, American or French companies or European companies? That's the new problem now. I think it's a new challenge now. At this stage, five years after the adoption, almost six years after the adoption of the law, we really need to, to strike a balance um, between the desire to, to, to change again um, and the um, awareness that we need to build incrementally on the strong foundation that were laid by the um, French anti-corruption law. So bringing about additional change will um, put companies in a situation in which they will again doubt and ask themselves what to do and, and, and they will be unable to, to, to effectively fight against corruption. So now we're in a situation in which we really need to build on the efforts made before and to consolidate somehow what exists instead of bringing change that is somehow unwanted. Um, the situation is not the same as in 2016. In 2016, the uh, business community, uh, which is extremely counterintuitive because in general, they don't want additional obligations, but they were very much in favor of a legislation on the fight against corruption to create a level playing field for French companies and to attract investors, both domestic and international. But now, and you know that in France, there was some kind of attempt to uh, uh, to change legislation, to, to, to adopt a SAPN 3 Act, um, which doesn't seem to, to that it will be adopted anytime soon. But the situation is absolutely not the same. And now we don't have a bad OECD report as it was the case in 2016. And now the extraterritorial application of the FCPA is not as aggressive as, as before against France. And now the business community is absolutely not in favor of a new law. So we are really in a, in a situation in which we need to, to consolidate what we have instead of changing again and creating some kind of confusion and questioning. Uh, for um, companies as well as for public entities. So we probably need to, to continue instead of um, changing what exists. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedules to share uh, your insights drawn uh, on your years of experience working in this field. Um, it's fascinating for me as someone who knows a little bit about France from a distance, but doesn't really know a lot of the, the details of the nature of the reforms and how they've been implemented. And I'm sure this will also be of great interest to, to our listeners as well. So again, um, thank you so much for, for joining me today on this episode of Kickback, the Global Anti-Corruption Podcast. 
My guests again have been uh, Michelle Sapin and Valentina Lana. Uh, I, I wish you both the best and perhaps we can have another conversation again uh, some number of years in the future and see how things have continued to develop. So thank you very much. We would love to talk again. It was a genuine pleasure to be in conversation with you today. Thank you so much. That's it. Another episode of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Kickback is a joint production of the global anti-corruption blog and the interdisciplinary corruption research network that just held its sixth forum in Bologna. So for all of you who attended the forum, Christopher and I and Matthew are really sad that we couldn't be there, but we hope you had a great time. Kickback is produced by Matthew Stevenson, Christopher Starke, Jonathan Kleinpass, and me, Niels Kubis. Special thanks to Amy Assad for editing and Kaihan Gorelka for composing the jingle. Until next time.